It's Thursday, September 30th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Hello, Radio Free Oz is back. Yeah, that's kind of my AM voice that I was never able to use. Uh, well, uh, I'm your host, Peter Bergman, here on Radio Free Oz, and Dave Osmond, my co-host, will be right back. But first, let's get local with Sheriff Luther Axhandle. How you doing, uh, Sheriff? I'm doing just fine here, Mr. Bergman, and I tell you, this has been one of the most boring weeks in the Sheriff's Department we've ever had here. Well, I, I think that's good news I for some give people. You the, I want to give you the top of, of our boring week here. Uh, on Thursday, yeah. uh, a person wanted to know if they, meaning us, wanted to report a, a wet T-shirt contest that was planned at a Freeland business on Friday. But good Lord. Do, do, you, do you think I should be reporting on I me? Mean, no. no I, it's no. more than I want to know. You get your T-shirt wet, you do it on your own time, and it and has none that, of your business. No city employees are to be involved in this, all right? And then on Friday, just the next day, I tell you, a woman on Dow Road said she got lost in the woods on her way home and had been lost for three hours. But by the time she called, she was no longer She was lost. found. She was found. We didn't help her at all. There was, we weren't involved in this. Whoa, now, this is one of the low-end weeks. On Saturday, you, you, I mean, we're in trouble now. and We're going into the weekend. You're already there. Nothing's there, happened. There's a lot of traffic out there, and we got to, uh, well, uh, here's the next one. 2.55 p.m., a caller wanted an ambulance to assist a woman with abdominal pain, but the woman didn't want someone to come to the house or any drama. Well, that's her. I guess she has the right to die alone or, or have a gas attack on her own. Absolutely. We yeah. said we did. We didn't send the emergency vehicle out. If she don't want it, she don't get it. That's the way. We got to conserve some money here Absolutely. on the island. Absolutely. Well, I'll finish man. off with you on Sunday uh, just to show you at the end of a truly boring week at uh, 3.22 p.m., Somebody found a library card on Bayview Road. Well, that's that's it, man. That's call the AP. Uh, that's my bus. I gotta go now. Uh, this from the Associated Press, and it appears that after all, America wants not less but more Obamacare. Even if they don't like it, even if they don't want it, they want it. It appears. President Barack Obama's health care overhaul has divided the nation, and Republicans believe their call for repeal will help them win elections in November. But the picture's not that clear-cut. A new AP poll finds that Americans who think the law should have done more outnumber those who think the government should stay out of health care by two to one. I was disappointed that it didn't provide universal coverage, said Browen Bleakley, 35, a biology professor from Easton, Mass. More than 30 million people would gain coverage in 2019 when the law is fully phased in, but another 20 million or so would remain uninsured. Blakely, who was uninsured early in his career, views the overhaul as a work in progress. The poll found that about 4 in 10 adults think the new law did not go far enough to change the health care system, regardless of whether they support the law, oppose it, or remain neutral. So odd. The American public is right now. So odd. The AP poll was conducted by Stanford University with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Overall, 30% favored the legislation, 40% opposed it, another 30% remained neutral. Those numbers are no endorsement for Obama's plan, but the survey also found a deep-seated desire for change that could pose a problem for Republicans. Only 25% in the poll said minimal tinkering would suffice for the health care system. 
Brian Braley, 49, a tech industry worker from Mesa, Arizona. Uh, there's the keyword, Arizona. Wants Washington to keep its hands off. I think it's a Trojan horse, Braley said, whatever that is, of the health care law. It's a communist socialist scheme. All the other countries have tried this. They're billions in debt, and they admit this doesn't work. This is a complete fabrication. European countries are not billions in debts over their health care. It is working. It's working in Canada. It's working in Australia. It's working in New Zealand. This is the kind of lies that people just get away with because nobody at the table is going to say, well, you're full of it, Brian. It may well satisfy people, you know, that kind of argument to share Braley's outlook if Republicans succeed in tearing out what they dismiss as Obamacare by the roots, but GOP leaders would still find themselves in a quandary. Republicans are going to have to contend with 75% who want substantial changes in the system, said Stanford political science professor John Krosnick, who directed the university's participation. Republican legislators' passion to repeal the legislation is understandable if they are paying attention to members of their own party. Krosnick said. But if they want to be responsive to all Americans, there are more Democrats and independents than there are Republicans. At least right now there are. This health care thing, the, 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 the billionaires who oppose it, the insurance companies that oppose it, the, the people who are running the Republican Party and all the drones in George Washington hats have so far succeeded in poisoning the mind and the small minds of the American public. We're going to have to pump things up if we're going to get real about health care, because if we don't bring in health care, we're going to keep a, a, a sick workforce, sick children, uneducated, unprepared demise. We're dining locally again with Chef Jess. Jess, thanks for joining us here in the Oz Studios at Blue U. Thank you. Oh, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Now, this is our third get-together. In the first couple, we talked about the fact that you run a restaurant here on the island that uses almost entirely local food and, and the effect that had. And second of all, what it, it meant for you to be able to go out and place long-term orders, seed orders with, with, with your suppliers on the island mm-hmm. and, and the fact that how it affected prices and availability of things, all very natural. Now, having been in this for a while, what effect do you see that this, this is, what local effect has this, this had? Um, well, statistically speaking, every dollar that you spend within your community generates $3 in that community. Oh, really? Um, every dollar you spend out of your community, maybe at a, your big marts or somewhere you know else, takes money out of your community. It costs your community money. Right. Um, so I feel like uh, uh, the dollars that we're spending here with our local growers are is generating money within the community. It's staying here in our community community and it's benefiting our community and our community members. Right. So therefore the money's staying in, jobs are being created. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's a real, in a sense, sacrifice may be the wrong word, but it'd be easy for you to get a food service. The truck comes in, you check off the list, they drop the boxes and off you go. But oh, no, sure. This is a lot more complicated. It is. But I think that that's what's missing in our food um, that we're eating today in this country and the way we're eating it, the, we're, we have the disconnect of our food and where it comes from. That's true. We don't have that story behind it of who our farmers are and why they're growing it. In, the, in this country, I was just reading this awesome article in um, Gourmet. It's on Facebook, and I, I just posted it so I could send it to you. But it's about the tomatoes that are being grown in this country. And the community in Florida that is the capital of where the tomatoes are being grown is poverty-stricken. Oh, 
These people that are growing, producing tomatoes are slave labor producing tomatoes. So we, when we go out and buy these tomatoes grown out of season, trucked all across the country, we're supporting that slave labor within our country. Well, there, there's a couple of ways we can approach. We can, we can support tomatoes grown locally, but yep. they don't grow all year. Right. We might have to take put stewed or canned tomatoes uh, that we've canned ourselves in during the winter. Uh-huh. We can also ask the government, which does have, I think, a legitimate federal role, or, you know, or state government, exactly. to go in and change the, or, and to regulate those conditions. Exactly. Because there's nothing wrong with getting tomatoes from somebody else as, a, as an idea. Exactly. But if they're being slave grown, it was the same question with, you know, our Chinese prisoners, uh, you know, uh, stitching up those soccer balls your kids exactly. are with their teeth. I yeah. mean, you know, you got to find out. Yep, exactly. And becoming more involved in your food, in your socks, in your <laughs> soccer balls, yeah. everything, you yeah. know, be involved in that. You know, it's true that what seems to be the most radical approach to what's going down, uh, besides, you know, voting the bastards out so that you can let other <laughs> bastards in, yeah. is disconnecting. Right. Not 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 being hermit-like, but disconnecting with the corporate approach to the answer to all your problems, exactly. like your tomatoes and your socks, yep. and taking a more personal approach. Yeah, blissfully ignorant is what I like to call that. Yeah, blissfully. Yes, blissfully exactly. Ignorant. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, you've seen a real effect. Uh, has, has the presence of the market you've made brought anybody into the business? Um. Or yeah, it yeah, has. it has. I've got an egg producer that's come into the business um, to pr- produce eggs for us. Um, really? I, one of my other farmers has hired two people to work for them Good. throughout the summertime. Um, I hire three or four extra people in the summertime to just process food for the cafe so that we have put food up for the winter. You know, I, at the Kabuni, uh, which is your restaurant, one of the things I realized I'd like to have, if not on the menu, at least some someplace, I'd like a description of some of the places that this food comes from. I'd like yeah. to sit down and say, well, okay, if I'm going to get your burger, it comes from the three sisters or whatever. And, and look, and the bun or whatever is from so-and-so on the list. I'd like to know that. That's great. Because that, that, I think, helps the local digestion. Exactly. It's really serving local food. And, um, and you talk about the economic impact. Well, it's also a little bit more expensive. Um, but of course. it's the educational component, you know, that people are really hungry for. They want to know where their food comes from. Well, thank you so much, Jess. We'll be back again soon. You're because, of welcome. course, there's, it, it's always time to eat. <laughs> yeah, it is. Thank okay. you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Well, that dang sheriff's in the news again. The Pinal County, Arizona Sheriff's Office has announced that it is reopening the case of a sheriff's deputy who was shot on April 30th after an article last week raised questions about the deputy's story that he'd been involved in a shootout with drug smugglers and just hours after telling uh, Talking Point's memo that the department stood by the original investigation. Seems like that's not the case. In April, the case of Deputy Louis Parole received widespread media attention as it came at the height of the debate over the state's controversial new immigration law. The tale was seized upon by anti-immigration activists to whip up support for the state's new law. Purell said that he was shot by drug smugglers during an altercation in the Arizona desert. Last week, a Phoenix New Times article solicited the opinion of several experts who said that the wounds suffered by uh, Peral looked like it had been made by a close-range shot, not one fired from 25 yards away, as Peral had claimed. 
Two individuals reported to a Phoenix media outlet that they felt Deputy Parole had been shot at a close distance, within a couple of inches, and not at a, not at a distance as the investigation had determined, the Sheriff's Department said in a statement. In an effort to maintain the transparency of our criminal investigation, we are reopening this case, i.e., in order to cover our sordid asses now that we've been caught, we're going to open it up again and see if we can blow some more smoke on it. Among the issues raised by the New Times article was why the department had not requested an examination of the shirt Parole was wearing the day, uh, that day for the presence of gunpowder, an examination that could theoretically sort out any ambiguity over what happened. According to the department's release, uh, that test will now be conducted. See, we didn't know how to do it before, but yeah, we got the equipment. Quote, the DPS Crime Laboratory has been asked to check the shirt for the presence of gunshot residue indicative of a close contact shot, charring, burning, or any other evidence that can they can find of a close contact shot. Well, Pinal County Sheriff Paul Babu has uh, quickly raised his profile on the national stage as an advocate for border security. This is a guy, Senator John McCain, enlisted Babu's help for his danged fence campaign ad earlier this year. Roll it. I'm John McCain, and I approve this message. Drug and human smuggling, home invasions, murder. We're outmanned. Of all the illegals in America, more than half come through Arizona. Have we got the right plan? Plan's perfect. You bring troops, state, county, and local law enforcement together. And complete the dang fence. It'll work this time. Senator, you're one of us. Eesh. Complete the dang fence. You're one of us. Eesh. Complete the dang fence. You're one of us. Complete the dang fence. I'm going to be reading from uh, Woodward's new book, Obama's Wars. It's pretty good, and it does uh, give us an idea of what the president went through in order to make some of the decisions. Um, uh, determining what's going on in Afghanistan, the war that can't be won, and it appears the war that can't be stopped. And it shows for sure that he's really no match for that military-industrial complex. It's from the Washington Post. For two exhausting months, he had been asking military advisors to give him a range of options for the war in Afghanistan. Instead, he felt that they were steering him toward one outcome and thwarting his search for an exit plan. He would later tell his White House aides that military leaders were really cooking this thing in the direction they wanted. He was looking for choices that would limit U.S. involvement and provide a way out. His top three military advisors were unrelenting advocates for 40,000 more troops in an expanded mission that seemed to have no clear end. When his national security team gathered in the White House Situation Room on Veterans Day, November 11, 2009, for its eighth strategy review session, the president erupted. So, what's my option? You've given me one option, Obama said, directly challenging the military leadership at the table, including Defense Secretary Robert M. Gates, Joint Chiefs uh, Chairman Admiral Mike Mullen, and Admiral General David H. Petraeus, then head of U.S. Central Command. 
We were going to meet here today to talk about three options, Obama said sternly. You agreed to go back and work those up. Mullen protested, I think what we've tried to do here is present a range of options. Obama begged to differ. Two weren't even close to feasible. They all had acknowledged. The other two were variations on the 40,000. Silence descended on the room. Finally, Mullen said, well, yes, sir. Mullen later explained, I didn't see any other path. The stark divide between the nation's civilian and military leaders dominated Obama's administration strategy review, creating a rift that persists to this day. So profound was the level of of distrust that Obama ended up designating his own strategy, a lawyerly compromise among the feuding factions. As the president neared his final decision on how many troops to send, he dictated an unusual six-page document that one aide calls a term sheet, as though the president were negotiating a business deal. The inside story of Obama's strategy review and what it shows about his leadership style and decision-making is based on meeting notes, classified memos, and interviews with more than 100 national security officials. Those first-hand accounts reveal a new president confronting the realization that months of tough debate and hard work had not brought forth a clear solution that everyone could agree on. Even at the end of the process, the president's team wrestled with the most basic questions about the war, then entering its ninth year. What is the mission? What are we trying to do? What will work? Nine years, my friends, nine years in in Afghanistan, and we're still asking ourselves, why are we here? What are we here for? And will it work? Oh, my. At critical points in the review, the ghosts of Vietnam hovered. Some participants openly worried that they were on the verge of replaying that history, allowing the military to dictate the force levels. While Obama sought to build an exit plan into the strategy, the military leadership stuck to its open-ended proposal, which the Office of Management and Budget estimated would cost $889 billion over a decade. Remember, that's just AFPAC. That's not the rest of the empire. Obama brought the OMB memo to one meeting and said the expense was not in the national interest. From the beginning of the review, it irked Obama that Petraeus, Mullen, and General Stanley A. McChrystal, then top U.S. commander in Afghanistan, had been out campaigning for more troops on top of the 21,000 that Obama had approved shortly after taking office. In September 2009, Petraeus called a Washington Post columnist to say that the war would be unsuccessful if the president held back on troops. This is not the way that a general is supposed to operate. It's not treason or sedition. It's pure bad politics. It's bad chain of command. Should have fired his ass. Later that month, Mullen repeated much the same sentiment in Senate testimony. And in October, McChrystal asserted in a speech in London that a scaled-back effort against Afghan terrorists would not work. On the day of Mullen's testimony, Emanuel and, and Deputy National Security Advisor Thomas um, E. Donilon jumped on Pentagon spokesman Jeff Morrill outside the Situation Room where the national security team had been meeting. The president is being screwed by the senior uniform military, they told Morrell. Filling his rant with expletives, Emanuel said, between the chairman, Mullen, and Petraeus, everyone's come out and publicly endorsed the notion of more troops. The president hasn't even had a chance. This is part two of Reading from Obama's Wars by Woodward out of the Washington Post. 
The only distinctly new alternative offered to Obama came from outside the military hierarchy. Vice President Biden had long and loudly argued against the military's 40,000 troop request. He worked with General James E. Cartwright, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to develop a hybrid option, combining elements of other plans that called for only 20,000 additional troops. It would have been a more limited mission of hunting down the Taliban insurgents and training the Afghan police and army to take over. When Mullen learned of the hybrid option, he didn't want to take it to Obama. We're not providing that, he told Cartwright, a Marine known around the White House as Obama's favorite general. Cartwright objected. I'm just not in the business of withholding options, he told Mullen. I have an oath, and when asked for advice, I'm going to provide it. Um, When word of the hybrid option reached Obama, he instructed Gates and Mullen to present it. Mullen had other ideas. He used a classified war game exercise, codenamed Poignant Vision, yeah, I'll bet it is, and held at the Pentagon October 14, 2009, to support his case against the option. Believing the game was rigged, Army Lieutenant Douglas E. Lute, Obama's representative from the National Security Council, boycotted it. According to participants, Poignant Vision did not have the rigor of a traditional war game in which two teams square off. The exercise was a four-hour seminar. At the November 11th meeting, in which Obama expressed his frustration, Petraeus cited the war game as evidence that the hybrid option would not work. So these guys are colluding against him. They're a bunch of cheaters. It would alienate the Afghan people whom U.S. forces should be protecting, he said. You start going out tromping around disrupting the enemy, and you're making a lot of enemies. So what have you accomplished? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Petraeus saw what Biden and Cartwright proposed as a repudiation of his protect-the-people counterinsurgency approach, the model he had designed and implemented in Iraq as commander of U.S.-led forces. This is not a stiletto. This is a chainsaw, Petraeus told Obama. So, Obama asked, 20,000 not really a a viable option? Mullen, Petraeus, Gates, and McChrystal all said it would result in mission failure. Okay, Obama said, if you tell me we can't do it and and you war-gamed it, I'll accept it. See, he really didn't know. This isn't a man who knows how they play tricks on each other in, in, you know, at West Point. This guy is a lawyer. He's a brilliant egghead. He's a a social organizer. But he ain't no soldier and he ain't no spy. No one contradicted the claim. Cartwright and Blair weren't at the November 11th review session. Biden later told the president the war game was bullshit. Experience. I like the way that Joe, that Obama, I mean, that Biden handles issues, you know. It's bullshit. I think that in a Delaware way kind of like wraps it up. Experienced Obama watchers could see from the back benches uh, that uh, of the Situation Room that the president was becoming impatient. He waved a green-colored graph from the military labeled Alternative Mission in Afghanistan as if it were a piece of damning evidence in a courtroom. The graph showed the projected deployments of 40,000 like a slow-rising mountain. The line peaked at about 108,000 troops in late 2010 and then gently slid back down to the then-current level of 68,000 in 2016. Six years out from now, we're just back to where we are now, said Obama in mild disgust. I'm not going to sign on for that. Ben Rhodes, the president's foreign policy speechwriter, passed a note to a National Security Council colleague. More troops in Afghanistan in 2016 than when he took office? Exclamation point. 
The timeline from deployment to drawdown was too long. Actually, Obama continued, in 18 to 24 months, we need to think about how we can begin thinning out our presence and reducing our troops. He later told his staff, I'm not going to leave this to my successor. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good attitude, you know. I'm not going to lay it on the next guy. The military's plan compromises our ability to do anything else. We have things we want to do domestically. We have things we want to do internationally. Obama turned to Gates. You have essentially given me one option, he said. It's unacceptable. Gates replied, well, Mr. President, I think we owe you another option. It never came. What's that all about? What's it all about, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith from Anytown, USA? Well, it's about this long. And about that wide. And it's about this country. About which we're singing about. Uh, This is the third part of my three-part reading of Obama's wars from the Washington Post. Three days after the November 11th meeting in the Situation Room, Mullen and the Joint Chiefs produced a new version of its alternative mission in Afghanistan graph. You know, these guys are just really good with graphs and scales and, and bogus war games. Fighting may be another thing. The revised chart showed a faster drawdown beginning in 2012 when Obama would be running for re-election. The then-current level of 68,000 would be reached by spring of 2013. Then the shift to an advise-slash-assist mission would begin. Uh Uh-oh, more missions. The new timetable relied on four key assumptions, none of which the strategy review had suggested was likely. The assumptions were that Taliban insurgents would be degraded enough to be manageable by the Afghans, which is, of course, completely impossible. Two, that the Afghan National Army and police would be able to secure the U.S. gains. Absolutely not. All they know how to do is desert and smoke hash. Three, that the Taliban sanctuaries in Pakistan would be eliminated or severely degraded. That's what we're trying to do now with 20 drone strikes in Pakistan in this month alone, twice as many as the month before, and it's not doing any good at all because all of those bozos in Waziristan are being protected by the security forces in Islamabad. What are we doing there in the first place? Also, and that the Afghan government led by Hamid Karzai could stabilize the country. I mean, um, the um, prosecutor in New York City is just about to indict Karzai's brother, who is a U.S. citizen. It's as close to him as we can get. The chart projected about 30,000 U.S. troops remaining in Afghanistan through 2015. Two weeks later, on the day before Thanksgiving, the president and Emmanuel met in the Oval Office. No Pentagon officials were there. Obama said this had been his most difficult decision, and it seemed to show on his face. I've decided on 30,000, he said. Of course, he didn't, he didn't listen to Eikenberry, the only true military gentleman, scholar, and visionary amongst his available resources. He listened to Petraeus, who turns out to be a deceitful individual, and McChrystal and Mullen. These people should be out on their butts. This needs to be a plan about how we're going to hand it off and get out of Afghanistan, he said. Good luck, oh. Everything that we're doing has to be focused on how we're going to get to the point where we can reduce our footprint. He said he didn't want to use the word counterinsurgency. The language he wanted was target, train, and transfer. (laughs) Good, good. 
An aide pointed out that not everything was resolved with the military. The Pentagon had revived a pending request for 4,500 more enablers. These are logistics, communication, and medical personnel. Enabling, doesn't that come out of 12-step? I mean, aren't, aren't enables people that come along and help you do bad things to yourself? I need 4,500 enablers in Afghanistan to just help screw things up entirely. I want them to be there for that. I'm done doing this, Obama said, clearly annoyed. The 30,000 was a hard cap, he said. I don't want enablers to be used as wiggle room. Oh, my God, enablers as wiggle room. Let's meet in the wiggle room and talk about the enablers. We're not going to do this unless everybody literally signs onto it and looks me in the eye and tells me they're for it, Obama said. Later the same day, of course, many of the military are too short to look him directly in the eye. They have to put him on an Apple box, which is also an enabling device. Later the same day, Obama held his regular weekly meeting with Gates in the Oval Office. The room is so well lit, bright with no shadows that it has a stark feeling. It's assuredly a setting for business. Under the redefined mission, Obama told Gates, the best I can do is 30,000. This is what I'm willing to take on politically, the president said. I've got a request for 4,500 enablers sitting on my desk, Gates said, and I'd like to have another 10% that I can send in enablers or forces. I'll need them. Bob, Obama said. Bob, isn't that the name of Tony Hayward's yacht? Oh, my God. Bob is ruling our government. Bob, Obama said, 30,000 plus 4,500 plus 10% of 30,000 is, he had already done the math, 37,500. Sounding like an auctioneer, he added, I'm at 30,000. Obama had never been quite so definitive or abrupt with Gates. I will give you some latitude within your 10 percentage points, Obama said, but under exceptional circumstances only. Can you support this, Obama asked Gates? Because if the answer is no, I understand it, and I'll be happy to just authorize another 10,000 troops, and we can continue to go on as we are and train the Afghan National Force and just hope for the best. Hope for the best. The condescending words hung in the air. As indeed did our future. Mysteriosos revelados del Congo Ritire de la maldad Brujo poderoso Chango macho Buenos sueños Convertidos en realidad Buenos sueños Convertidos en realidad No 
nothing in your stomach You began to shiver We're waiting for the sun You know that Sunday sun Then we'll go marching baby one by one I Start by calling you 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 I'm Skyping with Lorraine Moray, um, an international um, radiation expert and former environmental commissioner uh, in Berkeley. Nice to have you on Radio Free Osloren. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. This is my first time, and I'm really excited. Well, you sound excited. You sound great there. And, I, and we're going to be discussing a very an, an, an area that a lot of people probably haven't paid a whole lot of attention to, and that has to do with the obesity problem amongst uh, Chinese children. These are mainland children, right? The children in China itself, right? Yes. Okay. Why don't you tell us about that, okay? Well, there is an epidemic of obesity and diabetes in China, as well as infertility. And these are um, characteristic of uh, radiation exposure. We know that from Hiroshima and Nagasaki studies, nuclear power plant studies, nuclear weapons testing studies, Chernobyl, and now the depleted uranium uh, nightmare that's been created by the U.S. in the Middle East and Central Asia. So it is a it is a, a, a symptom of radiation poisoning. This obesity obesity. I had no idea. Yes, most people don't. And um, two years ago, uh, well, what I did is I'm a geoscientist, uh, so I started mapping disease. 
And when I saw a world map of diabetes in the New York Times, I realized immediately that the pattern of, uh, of, um, of incidents around the world was directly related to nuclear bomb tests in the Northern Hemisphere by uh, the Soviet Union, the U.S., and then in the Southern Hemisphere by, us, uh, by the British in Australia and the French in Tahiti. In other words, the highest rates of diabetes <laughs> in the Northern and Southern Hemisphere were um, at the same latitude yep. around the planet, and that is the jet stream carrying the radioactive particles around the world where they are rained out and snowed out into the environment. Good Lord, and this has had a particular effect upon China. Yes, but that's not what is causing China's epidemic of diabetes and obesity. It's actually the depleted uranium weapons the U.S. is using in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they completely poisoned Yugoslavia with these same weapons. And when uranium catches on fire and burns, it ignites just from the, um, in the gun barrel, just from the friction of the projectile going, uh, being ejected from the gun barrel. And it can reach temperatures as high as 5,000 degrees centigrade. Peter, that's hotter than the sun. Mm. And it, it creates extremely tiny nanoparticles. It's, it's a dust, but even smaller particles make it a radioactive poison gas. And it is rained out by the monsoon. The monsoon cycle carries it uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, in over the Punjab in northern India, over the Himalayas, and then across uh, Asia, China. And the rain out has caused a huge, huge increase in diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and other related illnesses. Well, this is absolutely shocking. Is, is there any movement whatsoever to stop using this depleted uranium, which is just great for going through other people's tanks? Of course, there are no tanks over there. What do they use it for, going through other, just other people? Why are we using depleted uranium in the first place? Well, I mean... Be- because, because since World War II, the civilian population has been the real target of of wars and what they're carrying out is depopulation (laughs) so they can steal the mineral resources the oil and gas the gold uh in the gold mining belts it's happening uh, where pipelines also are planned for oil and gas. It's well, an energy war. Yeah, and even, even then, it's not a very good one. I mean, things are so mixed up over there. If that's really the dark undercurrent, you know, maybe even the president doesn't know. I mean, I don't, it's just it's just so it's so pernicious. So, in any way, let's get back. We we're using depleted uranium. It creates a poison gas, which is rained out over over Asia, and it's causing a tremendous effect in China. Is is the China Chinese government aware of this? Of course they know, yes. In fact, they, um, they made an announcement to the Chinese Secret Service or intelligence agencies made 
uh, <clears throat> contact with Southeast Asian countries, governments, and uh, inform their intelligence agencies that in case Iran is nuked, all of that region is um, in danger of being contaminated with fallout from any kinds of radioactive or nuclear weapons that the West uses on Iran. Well, do you think this may be, <laughs> this may act as some sort of a break on our, uh, you know, on our most bellicose uh, uh, foreign policy. You know, there's that that saying that you know uh, during um, uh, the Iraq War, everybody wanted to go to to Baghdad, but real men wanted to go to Tehran. I mean, we've had our eye on that for ever so long. Well, this is this is quite. It, it, is, has anybody brought this forward to the to the media? Is this thing? I I don't like the idea of it's being suppressed. There's a conspiracy. Sometimes it's just plain ignorance. Is there is there anybody well, in, in the mainstream it, media that's picking this up? It definitely is ignorance, and I'm basically an educator. <clears throat> and um, so two years ago, I finally identified the link between uranium and diabetes, heart trouble, infertility, um, uh, and obesity from a study that was done at the University of Northern Arizona exposing pregnant mice to uh, depleted uranium in their drinking water below the EPA standards. In other words, the U.S. government said it was safe. And so I began with that study to investigate more, and I discovered that uranium is an estrogen and a hormone disruptor, which means that it disturbs the pancreas, which secretes um, insulin, and it also modifies the insulin in a way that it cannot enter the receptor sites on the cells. Thus, diabetes. Yes. <clears throat> That's diabetes. Oh, my, and, oh, my. And um, let me just read to you um, globally. This is from my paper that I presented at a war crimes conference in Malaysia last October. Globally, diabetes rates have climbed from 30 million in 1986 the year the Chernobyl disaster occurred, to 230 million. This is globally by 2006. Peter, this is the 767% increase in 20 years. That has to be environmental. Absolutely. It, it, it's, it's, it's not just a statistical outlier. This is the real thing. Well, we're going to, we're going to continue this conversation, Loren, uh, just as soon as possible. Thank you for coming on Radio Friaz, and you'll be back in a mo. Okay, thank you. Well, Peter, October is going to come up, and uh, uh, we're not going to be live and on the air over the first weekend of October, but I still want to give out the comedy calendar so people can really hold in their hearts some of the great laughs and voices of our not-too-distant past here. For example, uh, uh, Walter Matthau and Tom Bosley, two perfectly good, wonderful character actors, both born on the very 1st of October, along with Stanley Holloway, who is a great English comedian. Get me to the church on time, my fair lady. That was him, all right. Tom Bosley, of course, was uh, uh, endlessly on Murder, She Wrote, and, you know, probably is still collecting for that. Uh, and uh, Walter Matthau, born back in 1920. Mm. Mm. Odd couple. Messy guy.
Oh, I have great stories about uh, him, uh, an inveterate gambler, you know, crashing on friends' couches, you know, coming in without a house, completely destroyed and gone. <laughs> what a guy. Saturday the 2nd, uh, the premiere of The Aldrich Family, a show, you know, very strong in my memory because the, the Porgy Tirebiter character Henry, came right Henry? out of Henry? Henry Aldrich? That's right. It started on the 2nd of October. Uh, in 1949, actually, it started on television yeah. that year in 49. But the second is the uh, is Groucho Marx's birthday. Yeah, yeah, 1890 to 1977, 87 years old, still smoking the cigar all the way to the end. I I visited him near the end of his life. I was taken there by a friend, and he was there with his companion, Aaron, and he came in, and he was obviously suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And it was just – it just destroyed me because, I, you know, I'd mentioned that, that my uncle had written for him, and about 15 minutes in, he broke. He was just playing me. Oh. He, he was that – what a cruel <laughs> son of a bitch. He was just playing me. He was completely sane. He started talking about, you know, about my – what was his Bosberg, Al Bosberg, who was – in my family was one of the guys that wrote for the the, the, the uh, Marx Brothers. So he was cruel to the end, cruel and funny to the cruel end. Cruel and funny. Well, uh, the one half of a great comedy team, Bud Abbott of Abbott and Costello, was also born on the second – he was the tall guy, the straight man in yeah. that uh, team. Right. And on the third, uh, Mad Magazine's Harvey Kurtzman was born. Boy, Mad Magazine was important to my youth. Yeah. I realize now how much we waited for that monthly mag to come out and have the all, you know, it was like the Firesign Theater is to some people or has been to some people what Mad Magazine was to us. You recognized other people of similar sentiment Mm -hmm. by the fact that they knew or had a copy of Mad. He went on to uh, invent another magazine called Help. Help. And uh, and then for I guess it was for Playboy, he created Little Annie Fanny. Yes. And uh, got to kind of uh, assert those sexual vibes that uh, cartoonists love to assert if they can. Um, and on Monday, where we'll be doing a best of show uh, on the 4th of October, Damon Runyon and Buster Keaton. What a oh, combination. Would oh, you d- like to be in, oh. in, in heaven with them? You know, I was realizing that the two people, I've been writing blogs now and blogging regularly, and I'm saying, well, what sort of style am I affecting? Not, a, not copying, but who, who's speaking to me? And the two people that came to mind was Damon Runyon and uh, and the, the Baron of Baltimore. What's his name? You know, uh, uh, Mencken. Mencken, yeah. So I've got this character I'm creating called Mencken Runyon. Mencken Runyon. He's been there. He's been there. Oh, Mencken, man. We, you know, Christopher Hitchens, bless his soul, and I hope he gets through this, is the closest we have to Mencken right now. Well, it ain't Men- Mencken's birthday, but it is Damon Runyon. Oh, and for Damon those Runyon. of you who don't know anybody born in the 19th, the 20, 19th century, uh, Runyon is the guy who invented Guys and Dolls. Oh, yeah. Um, all of his books read like this, you know. It's he, all t- he's got this great New York slang. You know, it's hard for people who who are of not the age group, right, or not, you know, not historians of the period, to realize how powerful these people were to their time. We look at people today that dominate the airways, although we, because of the internet and TV and all the various ways we can be amused, there aren't, there isn't that same sort of dominance. But back then, man, a Damon Runyon book came out. People were waiting in line. They you know? were. Mencken was the voice of uh, the the curmudgeon of all politics and all social satire. It was, you know, there was just so. F- so many fewer places you could go to be entertained and informed. Well, see a Buster Keaton silent uh, this uh, um, uh, coming weekend. Uh, 
as late as Monday. Monday was his birthday, 1895 was when Buster Keaton was born. He was still around and in Hollywood, a completely unknown and forgotten like so many of those people uh, from the from the silent days. And uh, wasn't it, didn't Phil Proctor have his uh, his hat once? Yes, yeah. So, I believe he did, yeah. Buster Keaton's hat, or one of his well, many Well, let's hats. tip it to him. Let's do right. it. Now. now. Well, Pete, Yves Sansstuhl got there first. Of course, he's always there first. It was uh, Fashion Week in uh, New York very recently, and the fashions are in the news. And, and here are Halloween fashions at the very top of the news. This is from the Times, a story by Damien Cave. Dateline, Miami. Lady Gaga is likely to become this Halloween's hottest celebrity. Absolutely. <laughs> we got to use up all that meat. Yeah, right. What about all the meat in the refrigerator? Didn't somebody kill a couple of deer? I'll go as Lady Gaga. And it's out there in the freezer. Uh, Madonna uh, with, with meat, as one costume salesman described it. But when it comes to message-minded get-ups, political ghouls like Baracula are out. And corporate horror is in. Good. Yes, siree. And Eve was there first, of course. Here it is, all across the Gulf Coast and the country. The costume-inspiring guffaws and flying off the shelves consist of a green jumpsuit covered in oil with BP and a sunburst logo over the left breast. This BP stands for Bad Planning according to its creator, a Long Island company called Fun World. But only Rip Van Winkle would miss the joke. And uh, here's what uh, Fun World said. What's unique is that it combines the horror of Halloween with the topicality of the disaster, said the vice president of Fun World. We're like Saturday Night Live in a costume. He wishes he would like to have the sales, right? Well, let's just roll Pelican Briefs. Why not? This is uh, David Osman. I'm on the road for Radio Free Oz here in Gay Paris. And I'm beside the runway here at the celebrated Salon of the notoriously controversial haute couture designer Yves Sansstuhl. Uh, bonjour, Yves. Welcome to my Salon, David. Uh, we have just a moment before the showing starts for my latest collection, Toxique. Toxique, huh? Well, Yves, you're probably best known for your squid <laughs> agony boots. <laughs> you, you introduced them at your first Salon back then in uh, 1980, right? Well, I have them here in the case, the, the prototype of the agony boot. Oh, that's the look of the 80s, the cowboy styling. It's the fashion of President Reagan. He may have been brain dead, but the man knew how to wear that cowboy look. Uh-huh, and this exotic leather. Polar what bear hides, the stripes of the Komodo dragon. Uh-huh, and this a very high heel, uh, lucite with the flashing lights. Well, the beautiful lights were made by the agony of the squid, uh-huh. who emits the electric pain every time the wearer steps on the heel, compressing this little petty Mollusk. Oh, wow. And, but you had to take them off the market. Peter brought me down. Uh, I told them that the squid has a happy life, safe in the heel of the Reagan boot, but they put a picket line in front of my door. What, what could I do? 
Well, I, I see the showing's about to begin here. Uh, the audience is very excited. You can tell me, uh, what are we going to see today in your show? Toxique uh-huh. presents disaster fashions. Uh-huh. As you know, I normally design for the humans, but with the crisis in the Gulf, I, I have turned my attention to closing for the aquatic victims of this man-made tragedy. Uh-huh. Oh, so dommage. <laughs> it is for Yves stool to make it right for the pauvre animaux, n'est-ce pas? Oh, well, oh, and here, here comes your first model. The exotic beauty Giselle showing my fabulous oil-repellent pelican briefs made from the freshly recycled wild bird feathers, a form-fitting, as you see, for the natural look of nature in the raw. Oh, that's timely, timely, Eve. And, and here comes your model, Raffaella. Ooh. She is wearing my dolphin slicker. Everyone knows the dolphin doesn't look so good coated in oil, so I've designed the tight-fitting sailor costume of oil-free oil cloth with a self-sealing flap for the blowhole. Oh, uh-huh, <laughs> that's very, very thoughtful. Okay, now this next model, Lauren well, Hutton, yeah. showing the turtle shell by shell. Turtles and models can all live forever with this tropical carapace of million-year-old ivory hand-carved by Froggy Island Boys. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, this must be the finale. It's uh, the, the bridal costume. Is that... For the first time, I show the bride in bed. Oh. The pollution-free happy oyster bed. I begin with a mattress of clean sand covered with the 700-count hazmat on the bottom, uh-huh. then spilled repellent cover-up linens, uh-huh. the fluffy pillows and duvet boom are stuffed with clippings from famous Hollywood poodles and gaga wings. Oh. And finally, the green wash sham, sham for complete protection in the season of the hurricane. Well, well, uh, that sounds like a, a thrill. But the bride herself, uh, can you describe her outfit? Of course, uh-huh. money is dressed as a prototype of the jumper jail suit in Florida orange with stripes of bio blue. Oh, it looks pretty rugged. It has to be. I'm making it for the president of BP, Tony Hayward. <laughs> he will have to wear it a long, long time. Well, everybody seems very enthusiastic about that. Congratulations on your non-toxic showing. Yves Saint-Stool for Radio Free Oz. This is David Osmond in Paris. Au revoir! Fall is still with us, of course. It's a whole season, the darkening of the light. But I tell you, Oz is going to just burn things up during this darkening of the light. Let's do some autumn now. Is this Han Yu again? Is he still still with us? This is the last of the Han Yu poems. And, of course, 30 days hath September. This is the end of September. The most famous thing that happened on the 30th of September is not so much a comedy event, Pete, as a sad event that everybody who was there remembers the day that James Dean was killed the 30th of September in 1955. Yeah, and when I used to go visit my daughter up in Pebble Beach, I would take the road to cut across to 101, right? Past the tree that he ran into, and there's this big plaque and everything. I thought, Jimmy, we hardly knew you. That's true. Here we go. This is the last of the autumn poems of Han Yu. Evening darkness comes. The guests depart. The common din with each subsides, resting calm in the night's silence, autumn light untired enwraps me. Suddenly, worldly concerns invade my thoughts, outside cares infiltrate the true soul. A strong spirit swells, but not to fullness. Memories of weakness lapse, then surge again. I bend, stoop to elude the snares of talk. In darkness infinite, touch the heart's edge. Failure recalls a thousand in gold renounced. 
success like the bud of an inch small herb. To know shame makes moral strength, since who shall enjoin a mind at peace? Well, one of the reasons our minds are at peace, Dave, is that we're here, we're here in the beautiful Blue U Studios and recorded by the genius of Dave Maloney, whom I, for some reason, probably a brain fart, left out of the Oz team yesterday. And he said, if, well, if you don't mention me, I'm just going to stop pushing these buttons. No, David, no, 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 no,